welcome Tony Dickerson to the Total Therapy Training Podcast. A podcast thank you very much, Sarah. <laughs> Brilliant, thank you. <laughs> a podcast where you um, accompany me through my journey through traditional Chinese medicine. So, Tony, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. And you? I'm brillient. I was a bit nervous, a bit star-struck, um, shall we say, interviewing you. Oh, you don't need to be, believe me. <laughs> <laughs> Bless you. So, Tony, I'm really interested in what you're going to share with us today. So, without further ado, let's get into it. So, yeah. Tony, please tell us, who are you and what is it that you do? Well, obviously, I'm Tony Dickinson. I've been an acupuncturist for 50 years. Yeah, five zero. I'm getting old. Wow. Um, I was introduced to acupuncture by the late Sidney Rose Neal, who was the founder of the British Acupuncture Association College, which was held at University College in London in those days. And that's where I originally qualified. But I also wanted to know more about traditional Chinese acupuncture. So I also did the Lennington Spa qualification with uh, Jack Worsley. And then ultimately, because I was interested in Western medical acupuncture as well. Uh, I was co-founder with Dr. George Neiman of the British Academy of Western Medical Acupuncture. And uh, our college is at Liverpool Medical Institution, which is, was the first, Liverpool, first medical institution in the world, actually. And um, I'm, on, I'm chair of the college committee. I'm a member of the Executive Council of the British Acupuncture Federation. Um, and in between times of running a busy practice, I write international thrillers as well. I have a New York publisher. Wow. Um, I, I'm constantly kept busy, which is good. Um, so, and I still, after 50 years, love acupuncture, still get surprised by results on occasion too. Uh, and there can't be many disciplines where you're still that enthusiastic and you still get surprised by your own discipline um, other than acupuncture. Uh, and recently, the last two years of the onset of um, COVID, we set up a pilot study at Liverpool Royal Hospital because at any given time, 50% of the staff were off with stress. So we set up a stress clinic for everything ranging from cleaners to surgeons to nurses. Um, and I just think it's rather interesting that um, a 3,000 odd year old discipline came to the rescue of the National Health Service, which was falling apart at the time. And they now want us to go back and continue that and add it to Aintree University Hospital as well. And it's our aim ultimately to run out over the country uh, stress clinics for the public services such as police, uh, ambulance, et cetera, et cetera. So that's my basic background anyway. Basic. <laughs> There's nothing basic about that, Tony. <laughs> that's incredible. Well, it's interesting. I've had an interesting life, let's put it that way. Definitely. And I love what you said there about how it still surprises you, acupuncture still surprises you 50 years on. Yes. Uh, that, that happens at fairly regular intervals as well. Um, I'm just thinking that uh, one particular instance, a young girl of nine who was brought by an eminent dental surgeon, her, her father, who the, the young girl was paralysed, could not wait there at all. She went back and forth to the large children's hospital and they just said she might get better, she might not be get better. Um, four weeks of acupuncture and she'd got movement in her toes. Six weeks we had her walking and she's now back to perfectly normal. Uh, and they still can't believe it at the hospital. Now, 
the only thing I could see was that she had got faint plantar reflexes, which shouldn't have been there if there was a spinal cord severing. So I just said, well, we'll see if we can stimulate that. And we did, and it solved it. Um, I have to say, I think it was probably Guillain-Barre syndrome that, that was the problem there. But we, we worked on her immunity as well. And she's back, uh, in fact, won a race at school in the school of sports last year. So she's, she's doing all right. Uh, and again, you just don't expect that sort of thing to happen. And I had to warn them that it was a very outside chance, but it was, it was worth a go. Uh, and there's not many disciplines where that happens. So, yeah, acupuncture can be remarkable. Wow. Oh, my God. That's amazing. You've given that girl her life. Well, no, I haven't. Acupuncture has. But Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I, honestly, this is amazing. I, I, the more and more I do these podcasts, the more I, I, I just, I, I don't know, it fascinates me. It really sucks me in because it's, it's remarkable, isn't it, what it can actually do? Well, it is, but it's also, if you think about it, it's almost self-selective. It, it works neurologically. Okay. So if you've got neurological problems, almost by definition, it's the right modality to use, which is why it's so useful with Parkinson's disease, multiple sclerosis, and things like that. Oh, I see. So, and why um, is that Well, if, if you look in terms of medication, and don't get me wrong, I'm far from being anti-drug, but... Every, every drug has a toxicity. In fact, the EU definition of a drug is a substance that has a physiological effect upon the body due to its toxicity. Okay. So we take one step forward and to some degree one step back. So the aim with medication is to make sure that the benefits outweigh the side effects. But if we're looking neurologically, if we can affect things neurologically without creating a side effect, then you have to get a better overall effect. So it's almost self-selected. Tony, right, so we're going to get into it now. So in our initial chat, I was amazed at the subject that you've chosen to talk about today. And um, because right. in my opinion, it's so important, um, especially like with what you just said about the nine-year-old girl. So tell us, Tony, what is it that you're going to share with us today? Well, what I want to look at is how to communicate with the GP and the consultant. Yes. Because so often I hear from complementary practitioners in all fields, not just acupuncturists, that they never get any referrals from GPs or consultants. And my normal question is, well, how often do you refer back to a consultant or a GP? And frequently there's a deafening silence. <laughs> and I think it, it falls into an us and them situation, and it really shouldn't be. Because acupuncture is not alternative medicine, it's complementary medicine. Where we're at our most effective, they're at their least effective. And where they're at their most effective, for instance, acute infections and things like that, we're at our least effective. So one complements the other, or ought to, but most of the time it doesn't. And what I tend to find when I talk to a lot of complementary practitioners is that they're talking in their own discipline if they do contact the GP. Now, GPs and consultants are trained as medical scientists. And what I find is that effectively, if you like, as an example, the therapist, complementary therapist, is talking Swedish and the consultant is talking Italian and they're the, they're the two shall meet. And 
if we're going to move forward, we have to talk the same language. So I think it's very important that we approach this because at the end of the day, the benefit is going to be for the patient. If the GP or the consultant knows what we can do and we recognize what they can do, and let's get away from us and them and let's work together for the benefit of the patient. So I thought it was worth looking at how I've always approached it because my background is orthodox and um, try and help people to get more dialogue with the GP and the consultant. I've always done so and get referrals from consultants and GPs, but I've always attempted to talk in their language. So that's what we're looking at today, okay? Yes. How, how, how does a, a, a practitioner of TCM talk in a GP's language? Well, I think first of all is to look at the things that you shouldn't do because I hear from TCM practitioners who say that they've had a patient come to see them for consultation and they've, I think quite correctly, contacted the GP and they've said that Mrs. Roberts has come to see me at such and such an address who is a patient of yours. Uh, may I have your permission to treat Mrs. Roberts? Now that is an absolute recipe for disaster because clause six of the General Medical Council rules state that if a GP gives permission, then they are taking responsibility for that treatment and any consequences of anything went wrong with the treatment. So no GP is going to say, yes, I'll give you permission to see Mrs. Robinson. On the other hand, if they say, well, she's come to see me, do you have any objection to me treating? The GP is entitled to say, I have no objection. They're not taking responsibility. So that's the first thing. The next thing is that often, um, particularly if it's a female GP, as far as female complementary practitioner, who treats perhaps a lot of other women, it's quite nice that they've got a nice uh, mauve or rose pink um, correspondence and so on. But that immediately is anathema to the GP because if he gets a letter from a consultant, it's boringly black and white with the name of the consultant on the top, etc. So I'm always saying, look, by all means have nice, pretty stationery for your patients, but take the trouble to print a different letter heading if you're going to con- converse with a GP or a consultant. It just doesn't wash otherwise. Next, also try and talk in their language. So if you're going to say we're talking about yin and yang, immediately the mist comes down. And yet they're perfectly happy to talk about hyperconditions and hypoconditions. So let's talk in their language. Talk in terms of hyper needing sedating or hypo needing stimulating. Talk about meridians, they go blank. (laughs) Why not just use terms like neural pathways? That's something they understand. And, you know, I I treat quite a lot of patients who are having chemotherapy uh, for cancer. And as you would be aware, that acupuncture can be really good at reducing nausea and vomiting. Well, it's no good saying to them, I'm going to use uh, triple heat of five and heart constrict to six. Duh, no. (laughs) But if you say to them, you've almost certainly heard of seasickness bands and so on, which have been proven to be very effective. Well, I use similar points to that, and it has an effect on vagus activity, and as a result, we can make life a lot more comfortable for the patient. 
and they don't have to then rely on anti-emetic drugs on top of all of the medication that they're taking. Now at that point, as a medical scientist, that makes sense. Fine, yeah. So you've got to start talking in their language, not accepting to talk in your language. And I, I run have run several courses for complementary practitioners on how to converse and so on. And I bring up uh, redacted case histories and so on and say, right, well, how would you approach that? Nine times out of 10, they're going to approach it in a way that the GP or the consultant are just not going to understand. So it's not much point then in saying, well, I never get any referrals if you're not communicating. So I think that's the first thing I would say. Well, also, if we look at um, some of the terms that are used, um, I blame some of the colleges for this. Some of the terms that are used, for instance, um, I had one a little while back who was um, an aromatherapist. Uh, and the comment was that, They'd written to the GP and said that they wanted to treat the patient with a view to purifying their blood with essential oil. Now, the first thing that's going to happen there, the GP is going to say, well, if their blood isn't pure, they're suffering from sepsis. <laughs> um, for God's sake, you know, this is ludicrous. And then the bin it goes. Now, if on the other hand, they said, right, it's an established fact that the number of essential oils which have been used for hundreds of years are really effective at um, supporting the immune system. And that's what I want to do for Mrs. Jones. Well, that makes sense to the GP. I see. Uh, I think you've got to talk in their terms. And unless you're prepared to do that, you are not going to get the link that you want. And let's face it, we want them on our side, not against us. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think it's extremely important. And also, you know, I remember going to a conference in London years back, and it was a, an eminent speaker who stood up and said, our patients are being poisoned. Our first job is to get them off their drugs. And I, I was horrified. And at the end, when it came to question time, I requested that the chairman dissociate the meeting from the comments of the speaker and the sort of gasps of shock horror. And so I'd like to know that if the speaker does drop with a cardiac arrest in the street and it's taken into a coronary care unit after being uh, defibrillated, is he going to refuse any medication? And secondly, what am I supposed to do with my insulin-dependent patients when I've taken them off insulin? Yeah. And there was yeah. a deafening silence and I was escorted out. Oh. But you know, this, this sort of talk is dangerous. And it just mustn't happen. But you also get in the bias too. <clears throat> I was giving a talk at a large local hospital um, about acupuncture, uh, and it was specifically on pain relief. And uh, there were mainly anaesthetists and physicians. And there was one particular anaesthetist who um, was renowned as being decidedly rude. And in the middle of me talking, he suddenly put his hand up and said, are you trying to tell me this actually works? And I said, well, let's put it this way. There wasn't an orthodox Western medical doctor in China until around about the 1960s. So for roughly 3,000 years, they relied upon acupuncture and herbalism as their sole course of medicine. 
So let's assume that the Chinese were the largest nation of idiots ever to be placed upon this earth. And they relied upon a medical system that didn't work. I imagine you would conclude that they'd be decimated by disease. Sort of not hidden, I said, well, in case you haven't noticed, they've got rather a large population and the whole place just burst out laughing and that put him down. But you're always going to get individuals who have inbuilt bigotry and bias. And the only way around that is to consult them you know, with facts. So don't make wild claims about agriculture, but look at what research has been done, where it's been proven to be extremely effective, and quote it, and we can't argue. Um, so I, I think making wild claims is dangerous. Stating that drugs are dangerous, again, it doesn't help at all. I mean, some drugs have been proven to be dangerous, but there's an awful lot of drugs that haven't. And if we look at the moment, the lifespan, I mean, when I was young, even when I was a student, we used to say, oh, well, he's done well, he's made three score and 10. Now, if somebody dies at 70 now, we say, well, that was too long. Well, a lot of that is due to drugs. From the point of view, antihypertensives, statins, which have stopped people from having heart attacks and strokes in the way that they used to have. So nowadays, three score and 10, oh, that's, that's terrible. But even in my 20s, we used to talk in terms of, well, they made three score and 10. So you can't rubbish Western medicine, no. nor should we. There are failings and we can do things better than they in, in certain areas. So for instance, you know, I was running a course with GPs on how complementary medicine can help your practice. And I started off by saying, right, it's a Monday morning and you've just had a row over breakfast with your husband or your wife. You've got into your surgery and you look at your patient list and it's rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, post-shingles neuralgia, trigeminal neuralgia, migraine. How many of you want to top yourself by lunchtime, you know, and they all not. I said, well, if I saw that list, I'd be thinking, great, I'm going to have a good chance of success here. And you see the lights go, really? So I then look at redacted cases and go through them with them, you know. And uh, one classic one which I brought up with them, the patient of mine who asked me if I would see her mother, who was an 81-year-old lady. And uh, she... A very smart lady, and she'd come up to stay with her daughter, local to me, uh, driven up, and uh, she'd had dinner that evening with her, her daughter. The following morning, the daughter called up to say the breakfast was ready. She said, I'm on my way down. The next thing, she had a terrific thud in the hall. She went out, and her mother was non-responsive, collapsed on the floor. Fortunately, the daughter, three weeks before, had done... Um, first aid in the workplace course. So she rang 999, reported that she was non-responsive, commenced CPR. The um, paramedics got there very quickly. They defibrillated her and got her around. Got her in the ambulance. She had a further cardiac arrest in the ambulance, but once again, they defib. Got her into hospital, got her on a drip, and she survived. Now, when we looked at what had happened, she had been suffering from fairly mild osteoarthritis of the spine, but it was pain. So the GP had put her on Voltarol Retard, 
anti-inflammatory, which would work fine, but it upset her stomach. So put her on lansaprazole for her stomach, and she had one of the unusual side effects that does happen occasionally. She had severe headaches with it. They put on cocodamol for the headache, and that caused constipation. So put her on lactulose for the constipation, and it didn't work. So she went back and he gave her a more powerful laxative, but she didn't take it because she was driving up to her daughter's from Hertfordshire. She took it that night when she went to bed, and it worked plus plus in the morning before she came down. <coughs> and then effectively she died because she had a cardiac arrest. Yeah. Now, if we look at what had happened there, nobody knows what the cocktail effect is of that group of drugs. But plus the fact that the powerful laxative meant that she lost a lot of fecal fluid and her sodium and potassium levels went haywire, so her electrolyte. Fortunately, there was a quick defibrillator there. If there hadn't been, that was it. She had two cardiac arrests, so basically she died twice. In reality, as I said to the GPs, she didn't die twice. She was killed once. Yeah. Killed because of the medication. Now, if we look at it, how many of you have put out that regime of drugs and there were nods all around? <coughs> so I said, well, let's look at it. With acupuncture, we could probably have given better pain relief for that osteoarthritis. She wouldn't have needed all the visits to the doctor, all the different prescriptions, the ambulance, the hospital, etc. So when you look to the cost of that, then ridiculous. Acupuncture would have been a father. And we then look at redacted cases and start to look at what we could do. Because most of them haven't got a clue what we can do. Yeah. And if they can be educated in what we can do, then you're not going to get patients who land up with that regime and land up dead or severely ill. Uh, they're not going to be as busy and we can take the load off. And what I try and point out to them is that, look, we are at our most effective where you're at your least. And vice versa. If somebody comes in to me and they've got an acute infection, respiratory infection, and I have to listen to their chest, their fluid levels, I'm going to get them back as soon as possible to the GP. They need antibiotics in that case. And it's no good rubbishing antibiotics because they've saved so many lives. But if we can handle things without medication, let us do it. Or as I do with a number of my epileptic patients, with acupuncture, we can reduce the amount of lamotrigine and epileptic that they need to both of which are toxic. So if we can keep the medication low by seeing them perhaps once every six to eight weeks with acupuncture, so be it. And that's a help to the GP and it reduces their prescription bill as well. Yeah, precisely. That's what I was just... So that's how I, how I approach it anyway. Oh, that's what I was going to say. Would that be a good way to go about it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, everybody wins. You know, the, the GP is less busy. Uh, they've got less side effects. The prescription bill comes down, which they're always being pushed to keep their prescribing down. And the patient is having less seizures. So, what do we do? In that case then, say if there is a GP listening, they've, they've found this somewhere out there on the Tinterweb, and they're sitting on the fence about um, TCM. What would you say yeah. to them? I'd say that if we look at the fact that it's been going for three and a half thousand years. There has to be something in it. Yeah. <laughs> and then if we look at the fact that nowadays 
we understand the neurology and the biochemistry of it, that we can demonstrate that in terms of pain relief, it increases the output of both endorphins and enkephalins as well. We're then starting to talk in their language that they understand. We're looking at the biochemistry of it. It is not some freaky thing. And if we look at, some of them will say to me, what's this business about meridians? And I say, right. If you look at the work that was done at Chicago University um, by the neurophysiology department, they postulated that between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, there is an overload system. And the overload system is a pathway of low electrical resistance, which we call meridians. And that if the cerebral cortex of the brain becomes overloaded with stress, then inevitably, rather than ha literally have a brainstorm, it has to put that energy into the body. And it goes down, and this is how we get psychosomatic illness. And it often goes down into, via the vagus nerve, into the stomach, so people get indigestion, acid reflux, or it goes deeper, and the vagus nerve affects paracelsus, uh, affects um, gut function, for want of a better term. Okay, So they get nervous diarrhea or irritable bowel. And it's, you cannot have a mental illness or mental stress without physical symptoms. You can't have physical symptoms without mental symptoms. If somebody is riddled with pain continually with rheumatoid arthritis and they're happy about it, there's something wrong with it. They ought to be anxious that they can't do the things they want to do. They ought to be depressed that they can't do it. Likewise, if somebody is stressed out of their mind, they're going to have physical symptoms. So the Chinese originally have never even thought in terms of psychiatrists because they think in terms of treating the whole body, which is both mind and body. And yeah. if we talk in those terms, GP, then they start to understand it. But you need to look at the fact that, you know, you're looking at an overload interlinked system between the two, which also makes sense of things like um, referred pain. You know, we've all, we shouldn't do it, but it's been a very hot day and you've had a very cold drink or ice cream and you get that pain over the bridge of the nose. Yeah. And if you look neurologically, there is no link between the palate and the bridge of the nose. But if you look at your internal pathways in acupuncture, there is. Oh. Now that way you can explain to them that. And, oh, right, that makes sense. <laughs> so I think we have to take the trouble to learn a little bit about orthodox medicine, but it's basically physiology, neurology, and anatomy. And if we talk in their terms, then we get somewhere, instead of expecting them to do. Now, the trouble is, the British are very bad at this. Because, you know, most of the Europeans will make an effort to talk English. Yes. We just talk, we just talk louder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like they're um, I think we have to get over that. We have to become more European in terms of speaking their language. But that is also the case with the GP and the consultant. If we speak their language, then we get along and we get where we want to go.
Yes. But it, it is a failing of ours. We expect them to understand our discipline when we don't actually pay attention to theirs. That's correct. So it's it's on it's our responsibility then to learn yes. their language and get in there because ultimately and, and to teach them a bit about us. Yeah. Yeah. Because ultimately it's not about egos, is it? It's about the patient. Oh, it's about absolutely. Them. Yeah. Yeah. Um and I find that I get very good response from GPs and consultants and have done since the beginning. But then I, I always used to do when I had my big practice because I'm now semi-retired. My wife wow. howls laughing. But she howls laughing when I say that. But <laughs> when I had my big practice, I used to have a leaflet for patients and it used to run along the lines of what's the history of acupuncture? How does it work? What can it do? What can't it do? Yeah. Which again is important. You know, and this is another thing. If people think that they can treat everything that walks through their door, I'm very worried. Oh, right, I see. And again, this is where we look at referral in a moment. But on that leaflet, I used to say, should, should you tell your GP that you're coming for treatment? Yes. On the basis that the GP may well have prescribed medication for that condition, and it didn't work. The patient flushed it down the loop. And they came to see me or somebody like me, and they got better. Now, the GP thinks that medication worked. So they prescribed the best patient. So this isn't good. We're not doing anybody any favors. They ought to know what treatment is being given and what is being effective. So I've always encouraged my patients to tell them. Now, in the early days, I mean, people didn't understand anything about acupuncture, and the reaction from most GPs well, is, if you want to waste your money, it's as good a way as any. And we've had to educate GPs along the way, and that has happened now. Now, it's interesting now that just about every pain control unit in the country uses acupuncture, and a lot of physios do as well. So it's coming into the orthodox field, but 50 years ago, it, it was quite a battle. Um, but I think, again, it's a matter of education. Now, as I was saying, that if we look in terms of referrals, uh, one of the things that's really important is to recognise when you shouldn't be treating something. Obviously, uh, reportable disease, notifiable disease, you, you don't report. But um, I had a good example last year. A patient of mine that I'd seen on and off for years with chronic epilepsy. And we got her medication at a very good low level. And she'd come in for one of her regular treatments, which was roughly every couple of months. And it was wintertime, and as she was taking her sweater off to get ready for treatment, I noticed that she was out of breath. And I said, right, you're out of breath? She said, yes, GP said I've got asthma, and he's given me a vent and an inhale. So I said, all right. But hang on, I said, you haven't had any allergies before, you haven't had any asthma before. No. And she turned around at that point, and I could see that her lips were silenced. So I said, do you mind if I have a listen to your heart? She said, no, by all means. But listen to her heart. And there was a very distinct heart murmur. So have you ever had rheumatic fever? Not that I'm aware of, she said. But she may not have known anyway, because she could have just had a bad um, cold, flu-type cold. However, I was reasonably convinced that it was the mitral valve. So I gave her a sealed letter so that it wouldn't frighten her if she opened it. 
Yeah. So let me present that straight away to your GP because I think he'll want to make an appointment for you. Did he examine you when he said you've got asthma? She said, no. So I wrote to the GP. Now, this is important. You don't rub their nose in it. Yeah. Let's face it, we all make mistakes. So I said, um, but having treated her, as he was probably aware for many years, I was concerned that she was very breathless on arrival and uh, noticed that her lips were sinus. So auscultation showed that she'd got a heart murmur. I was suspecting mitral valve, although she didn't report any history of um, rheumatic fever. Um, as doubtless he hadn't had the opportunity to examine her recently, I felt sure he would want to pursue this further. So I've spared his blushes. I've made out I didn't know that she'd seen him recently. And uh, he called an ambulance on the spot and got addressed to the major cardiothoracic uh, hospital in our area in Liverpool. And uh, she had a, a long operation to replace the nodule. He, I hadn't met him before. He hadn't long come to that practice. Now, the beauty of that is that A, I didn't rub his nose. B, however, he's come to the conclusion, I know what I'm talking about. And C, if somebody says to him, doctor, I'm thinking of going for acupuncture, what do you think? The likely result is going to be, well, I don't know a lot about it, but if you're going to see anybody, I'd go and see him. Yes. Now, this is where it becomes a big advantage. So you start to get that once you've built confidence in the GP, you know what you're talking about. But you can only do that if you talk his language. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's no good me saying to him that from a five element point of view, we are getting, you know, the <laughs> talk in terms of cyanosing and mitral stenosis. Yeah, he, he understands that. Wow. So really, it's all about us learning their language. Like you say, um, when we do refer, not going, you didn't spot and you didn't see, you know, like... Just, That's lethal. Yeah. yeah. Immediately, they become defensive. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Tony, this is amazing. Thank you so much. Because I bet there's loads of practitioners out there who are so frustrated with GPs because they're not listening and they can see what they can't see. And now you've given us a way in, really. I think it, it's really important. And it, all I can say is it, it's stood the test of time. I still get regular referrals. So I must be doing something right where that's yeah. concerned, you know. Exactly. Um, and I think, you know, if, if anybody can benefit from my experience, well, fine, you know, that can only be good for the patient, the practitioner, and it takes some load off the GP as well. Definitely. And on the subject of China, you're saying they've got a massive population. They've also got a, a, a large older population, haven't they? Yeah. Who would have so. been just treated with acupuncture and West, you know, Chinese yes. medicine. So there yeah. must be something in it. <laughs> yeah, quite. Well, it's, it's proved the test, you know, over time. And uh, nobody can argue the fact that it's been around that long and Western medicine hasn't been around that long. Yeah. You know, if you think about it, as we think of it today, Western medicine is, is, is most is 150 years old. Oh, yes. Because prior to that, it was just it was bloodletting and the likes of that and so but, um, Really, it's, it's about 150 years old, 200 years old. Wow, 
and it just keeps evolving. Everything keeps evolving. Like you said, you, you learn from it all the time, 50 years yeah, on. Of course, a lot of our Western medicine is based on complementary medicine anyway. Oh. You know, the earliest uh, antihypertensives in this country were made from reserpin, which comes from tree bark in South America. If you look at the joxin, that comes from digitalis, the box. If you look at Boots, the pharmaceutical company, that was set up by Jesse Booth, who was a herbalist. Wow. So most of these things have come from natural products and herbs originally, and then have become synthesized. So, you know, everybody takes aspirin, but that comes from Salix Alba, the willow, willow bark. We could literally just go and pick some. Yeah. And, you know, country in the country, it was always the herbalist. And even when I was a child, my mother took me to the chemist, the pharmacist first. And if he didn't sort it, then you were taken to the doctor. Yeah. And we're starting to encourage that again now. People don't use the pharmacist enough. But that was the first port of call because until 1948, when I was eight at that point, um, until 1948, but there wasn't a national health service. And you had to pay to go to the doctor, but you didn't have to pay to go to the chemist. So if the chemist could sort it out, that was your first port of call. If they couldn't, then you had to fork out to go and see the GP. Then fortunately, the national health service came along and that altered that situation. But the net result is then we didn't use the chemist as much as we should have done. We're now being encouraged to do so. It's mad how it all comes back, isn't it? <laughs> Nothing is new. <laughs> <laughs> okay well thank you so much Tony for your knowledge and experience I, I I kind of I'd love to have you back on to talk about the stress clinics that you're doing how would you feel yeah by all means yep yeah.